Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, episode number 27 with Alan Clanins. My name is Dan J. Gregory, and I am committed to hunting down the secrets of business mastery and human performance. My goal for the Unstoppable Podcast is to share insights from some of the most successful entrepreneurs, inspiring thought leaders, world-class athletes, and prominent celebrities to help you to become unstoppable in business and life. Each week, I'll be bringing you a new interview with an inspiring person and sharing my own results as I pursue the answers to the question, how can I create the ultimate edge in my business, make a significant impact, and live an extraordinary life? Welcome to episode 27 of the Unstoppable Podcast. If you've been following the show recently, you will know that I've just returned from cycling in the Alps, having racked up a total of just under 400 kilometers over four days of riding. The journey started in Innsbruck and we finished up down in Verona within Italy, having cycled through the Alps and explored Lake Garda. It's an incredible trip. But having been back for less than 48 hours, today I'm actually moving house but I found time to create an extraordinary episode with a very dear friend of mine. I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Mr. Alan Kleinens. Alan Kleinens is a highly sought-after expert speaker, peak performance coach, and trainer. He is passionate about the subject of self-esteem and the psychology of success, and he loves inspiring and empowering others to create new levels of self-awareness and peak performance in all areas of their life. Alan has been studying the science of human behavior and peak performance since 1988, and he is a recognized authority on the dynamics of human potential and self-esteem. Specializing in peak performance training, coaching, and consulting for individuals, athletes, teams, and corporations, Alan has been helping his clients to create extraordinary results both personally and professionally since 2001. He has coached and worked with people from all walks of life, including high-performing business owners, financial traders, and sports personalities, including members of the Sharks and Springbok rugby teams in South Africa. Alan has also studied and worked with some of the biggest names in the personal development industry, such as Anthony Robbins, the late Jim Rohn, Deepak Chopra, Brian Tracy, Zig Ziglar, Tom Hopkins, Bob Proctor, Randy Gage, Robin Banks, John Kehoe, and the Landmark Education Forum. Alan is an articulate, moving, and inspiring speaker with a real passion for people and a pure desire to make a difference. Alan is extremely passionate about his message and he regularly facilitates public and corporate seminars, keynotes and workshops on personal and emotional mastery and the psychology of heart-centered leadership. However, more recently, Alan has been working with other speakers to enhance their speaking abilities and maximize the impact of their message. If you're an aspiring speaker, you will absolutely love this episode Today you will learn from Alan's own experiences and his story of personal transformation and you will discover how to become a master speaker and learn how to share your message with the world. I'm proud to introduce my good friend, Mr. Alan Clanins. Welcome to Alan. I'm absolutely delighted to bring Alan to the Unstoppable podcast. I've known Alan now for just over four years. We met for the first time whilst supporting one of Tony Robbins' events in London and we were just speaking offline about how it'd been a while since Tony had been to the UK. So it was a great, um, a great environment because it's such a big event and uh, had a pleasure of working alongside Alan and uh, seeing him in action with some of the leadership work that he does with, with uh, the Anthony Robbins organization. Uh, and we've become close uh, friends and associates ever since. So uh, delighted to have you on the show, Alan. Welcome. Dan, thanks, buddy, for having me. I mean, I'm excited to be here with you. Cool. So, Alan, I know we've uh, just introduced you offline, but uh, would you mind giving the listeners a little bit of a frame about who you are and what you're doing right now? Yeah, sure. Um, 
you know, uh, I, I speak. So what I do is I speak full time, and I've been doing that for 14 years. And uh, I do some coaching, uh, but speaking is my main passion. And I've done a lot of training, uh, and I do a lot of training in terms of uh, in a corporate environment. I've done a lot of sales training, leadership training, customer service training, and stuff on communication. And um, and as you mentioned, Tony Robbins, I'm a Tony Robbins trainer. And um, you and I met back in 2012, which was a fantastic year because he had been away for a long time and then came back to the UK after a long uh, gap from being in Europe. And uh, as you say, we've been great friends since then. And um, uh, But yeah, I mean, you know that I, I love to speak and uh, that's my main passion and I speak wherever I can, get the opportunity to speak and wherever I'm invited to speak. And I, I speak mainly about, you know, becoming your own, uh, you know, becoming someone who's a leader and, um, you know, how you show up more powerfully in the world, et cetera, and how you can make more of a difference uh, to everyone you meet. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing your introduction. So I'd like to take a bit of a delve back into the past now and find out a bit about your, uh, your beginnings. I know that you spent some time out in Angola. Um, would you mind sharing your entrepreneurial beginnings and how things got started for you in life? Yeah, sure. Uh, my entrepreneurial beginnings uh, started um, – a long time after Angola, but, uh, well, I mean, I, I say a long time, probably you know, two, three years after, but, uh, you mentioned Angola. I was there as a soldier and, um, I grew up in South Africa and, um, you know, I was an only child and, uh, I went to two schools. Um, the second one was a boarding school. My father was a very strict disciplinarian and, um, decided that boarding school would be a good thing for me. Uh, I wasn't much acad- into academics. I wasn't academically minded. Um, and, but I enjoyed sport, and I was always quite, you know, physically able, and um, always been, you know, into health and sport, etc. And I think that what that that was my saving grace because it was a it was an expensive school, and um, uh, and I just made it through academically. But uh, yes. in terms of you know what I did there in terms of sports, which was which was what I enjoyed the most about it, um, and I think that's what kept me there because I was <laughs> I was one of those boys who. It was a bit of a rebel, you know, and um, always was breaking the rules, etc., and getting bust, for, getting caught for bunking out and doing things that I wasn't supposed to be doing, and I was on the brink of being expelled a couple of times. But uh, when I got to the age of 18 and I finished school, uh, I had had a letter in the post, and it was about your know, your my intake to the army. And uh, you know, at the time, the, the the army was compulsory in South Africa, so if you mm. didn't go to university, uh, then you had to go to the army. Those were the two options available to young boys at that age. At that time in South Africa, it's changed obviously since then, and now it's uh, voluntary. But um, it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting two years, and I spent seven months of that two years in Angola. And uh, prior to that seven months, I'd been trained in all kinds of different disciplines, etc. And I was posted all over the country to different places. At the, but the last seven months of my two-year uh, stint in the army was spent in Angola, which was a really tough time. And I, it was during the height of the civil war in Angola, and um, it was. Interesting because of the fact that South Africa wasn't supposed to be there at the time because of the Geneva Convention and it was uh, we were there on a top secret mission. We were sent up there. It was about 6,000 of us and uh, we were, uh, you know, kind of at war for seven months just wow. about every other day. Uh, you know, mechanized infantry tanks, you know, um, thousands of vehicles, m- millions, hundreds of millions of um, of South African rand spent on ammunition, you know. And, wow. um, yeah, it was a Cuban uh, Cuban, we were up against Cubans and Russians and, um, that were, that were funding the, um, the, what we called FAPLA, which was, uh, the Federated Angolan Liberation Army of the people of Angola out there. So, uh, it was, yeah, it was a pretty messed up situation. And, um, 
spending seven months there and you know the very first contact we had I lost uh, three four mates wow. uh, one of them died a little while later after our, you know, while I was giving him a blood transfusion and uh, we were currently at that time I remember I was having some blood pumped from my arm into his arm and I looked up and there was a MiG-27 flew over us and dropped a bomb you know my goodness uh, about a couple hundred meters away and um, it was crazy you know non-stop gunfire it was in, incessant noise just deafening noise mortars going off all the time and for that period of time, I mean, the whole time it was just living in like a constant state of anxiety and fear, really. And, um, yeah, that was fascinating because I look back and I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, fear is an interesting thing. And, and I think there wasn't a, a man alive in that situation who didn't, who wouldn't admit to being completely fearful, you know, yes. because it's a life and death situation and you've got guys dying left and right of you. And, um, you know, coming home from that, uh, looking back at it, uh, I spent, you know, several years uh, just trying to deal with what I'd been through and, and um, had lots of nightmares about it. And um, it was, uh, but thankfully it led to, what it led to was my desire to understand how my mind was working. Yes. And, um, but yeah, it was a very, it was a tough time. And it's something that um, I've spoken to a, quite a few guys about who had been in that kind of situation. Actually, funny enough, you just taken on a new guy in terms of um, like a mentoring. It's not really coaching, but it's like a, it's just somebody that uh, who was in the same kind of situation, but for a lot longer than I was, was special forces in South Africa. Yeah. And we were just talking about that experience just yesterday wow. and, you know, what it means to somebody and how it affects people, you know. Uh, it must be somebody. so traumatic, though, you know, that most people yeah. would never even, you know, you talk about fear. And I'd like to come back to talk more about fear because it impacts, you know, when you're in life or death, that's where fear is meant to be activated and triggered. Yes. And I think yes. a lot of people are, are experiencing different types of fear, but they've probably never been to that depth of fear that you've experienced. It must have been such a traumatic situation. Yeah, very. I mean, you know, one thing I do remember is that, um, you know, you uh, you get a, a lot of time, a lot of guys out there at the time, they had um, just you had upset stomach all the time, right? Because you so your body is just freaking out. Stress. And you've got yeah. such a high sense of terror, you know? Um, and you're on full alert all the time. Um and then, but there's at times when you were just, you know, while we were in combat and that, and combat situations where you're just operating on unconscious, you know, because you, you're so trained and, and it's, and also it's a situation of, you know, doing whatever you need to do in order to stay alive. Mm. Um, uh, but going through the motions and it's, it's, it's a weird situation because I remember being in a two states of mind at the same time. Like one state of mind is like WTF, what the hell's going on here, right? <laughs> yeah. Like this is crazy, right? And the other, and the other state of mind is like, okay, cool, you know, uh, mortars, you know, just and going through the motions. As I was a patrol mortarist, so I would have to carry a short mortar pipe and, you know, I was always carrying at least 12 mortars on me at any time. So I was yes. carrying at least 25 kilos all the time. Um, and um, I was... Um, I remember when I came out of the army, I had extremely strong legs <laughs> because I had spent the previous seven months in Angola in really thick sand, you know, um, and carrying like at least 25 kilos, you know, 12 mortar bombs, you know, like eight, eight, eight um, ammo cases, you know, for my, for my R4 weapon, which is uh, very similar to, um, um, to an AK-47. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was just crazy, crazy. And, you know, um, we spent a lot of time moving around the bush in, in, in these big six-wheeler vehicles, you know, which are called rattles. And, um, you know, these are massive vehicles which are, with, the, with the 20 mil cannon on top and an anti-air gun at the back and carries 10 troops. Um, and, uh, you know, and obviously we had tanks and 
and all kinds of other vehicles. And water was always being brought in because there wasn't a lot of water there. So we had to bring, bring water in in these big water trucks and we would get water rations and we'd have to make sure that we, you know, you'd, you'd ration out your water. So you made sure you never ran out of water because if you ran out of water, you were, you were pretty much stuffed, right? Um, extremely hot weather, like 45 degrees, you know, in the shade and extremely high humidity and lots and lots of bugs and snakes. I remember we even lost somebody to a snake. You know, a snake fell out of a, fell, fell out of a tree. Okay. Uh, one of the tanks was going through the bush. There were no roads there and everything. So all our tanks had to actually make the roads for us. And we were constantly playing cat and mouse with this enemy. And there were 25,000. Apparently, the, our reconnaissance had, um, you know, our reconnaissance uh, told us that there was a force of 25,000. They were camped in different areas all around Angola over a vast area, you know, a um, couple of hundred square miles. And uh, we were just playing cat and mouse, you know, for seven months, moving through the bush. And then, and then every time we would have combat, and we were also being hunted by MiG 27s. Goodness me! Enemy aeroplanes. So every time there were enemy planes above us, we would have to pull into the bush and sit still, and you know, wait for the plane to disappear. Um, and so it was a crazy time. <laughs> it was yeah. really nuts. I mean, I've had so many conversations with people on this podcast about fear, and it's such a different level. So, yes. what was life like for you when, when you finally came out of that situation? It was really tough um, because coming back to civilian life, virtually it was l only literally two weeks, you know, two weeks I was in Angola and two weeks later I was at home and I was out. And in that two week period, I had been to rehabilitation because we had, we were sent to rehabilitation mm. um, to talk to psychologists and psychiatrists, et cetera, about what we experienced. And we, we went through a whole process of that um, for three, four, five days. Uh, and then we were, then we were back to our camp in South Africa and then we got our medals and we, and then we had our, our finishing parade and we were out and I was, I was at home two weeks later and, um, and literally 12 days after I got home, uh, I think I got home on the 12th of December, 14 days after that, I turned 21 Wow. on the 26th of December. And I remember sitting and sitting with my parents um, on, on my birthday and we were having a little barbecue, just the three of us. And we were, I was having a beer with my dad and we, and we didn't talk much, you know, we just, it, obviously they were glad to have me home, but I was in my head a lot. Mm. And um, I was just glad to be sitting, you know, sitting in South Africa in the sunshine, drinking a cold beer and thinking, thank God I, I survived that. And, yes. um, and also wondering all the time how I did survive that. But what came after that was a flood of guilt. And I think that's what I was talking to this guy recently. This guy was also special forces. And, um, you know, he said this suffered the same thing. And I, it's the same for a lot of guys that I've, I've spoken to have been in a situation like that, whether they're ex-police personnel or ex-military. Um, people who have been in combat, if they've lost mates in that situation um, and they come back, then it's usually a, 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 the guilt complex is like, you know, how come I'm alive and my mates didn't make it? You know, what, mm. why am I so special that I, I, I'm alive? You know, and do I deserve to be alive? And that's combined with a, with a, um, with a, the words I'm going to use now for myself is a mild curiosity, which is probably, I could use more colorful language for that, I'm sure, <laughs> but, um, which is a, a, a fascination or a curiosity with what, what people are complaining about, you know, in, in civilian life, when you come back to it after you've spent like seven months in that kind of situation, which is like kind of living in hell. Um, and it's deafening noise all the time and people are, you know, constantly dying left, right. Now you come back to civilian life and people are complaining about the fact that, you know, the, someone cut them up in the traffic or the weather's too good, uh, you know, it's raining or, you know, and you just think, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> yeah. if only, you, you know, you just, life is so easy, you know, if you just. Perspective. You know, because, yeah, it is. It's all about perspective. But what followed after that is I, I began to drink a lot and because I was just having, I started having nightmares and I, and I, so I started drinking and I drank every day for 
just for the longest time. And I think it was at least probably about six, seven months before a friend of mine actually said to me, who had been in the same operation as me, actually, and um, I bumped into him and we lived very close in the same neighborhood. We both lived in blocks in a, in a block of flats very close to each other. Mm-hmm. And he said he was a he was a great reader and he had lots of books on his bookshelf and he had a little he had his own little flat at that time already. And, um, you know, we bumped into each other when I was going to the bottle store was what I would do every day is I would go to the liquor store and get some alcohol and I would drink, you know, until I would pass out. So I didn't have any nightmares. Um, and my parents obviously were freaking out much later on. I discovered they were obviously very stressed, which I, I was oblivious to the fact I was putting them through a lot of stress. I was just locked in my own little world. Yes. Uh, but he was the one who introduced me to psychology and he said, um, and self-development. And he said, Hey, listen, you need to read. He said, this book has really helped me. And, um, he said, uh, take this book and read it. And it was think and grow rich. And that was 1988, July of 1988. Wow. And, um, and so I took it and I read it. Uh, but he gave me some great instructions and I've always read a book ever since in the same way. He said to me, he said, you want to read this book as if the author is sitting opposite the table from you and he's telling you the story. Wow. That's how you want to read it with that kind of fascination. And then he said, make notes, you know, feel free to make notes in the side, on the side of the pages or find a book and make some notes and refer back to the book. And, and he said, anytime you're feeling like you're going down that dark rabbit hole again. He said, just you know, pull out the book and read it or think of what you read in the book and, or recite something to yourself or come up with a phrase that will help you to alleviate the, that, that darkness. You know? And so that, that was my first introduction. But it, what it did, it reminded me of a book that my father had made me read four years prior to that, mm. um, four or five years prior to that when I was about 15 or 16. He, he told me to read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Wow. And so – I reread that book again, but this time I, I actually in, enjoyed it. The first time I read it, I just read it because my dad told me to read it. Yeah. And I don't even think I read the whole thing properly. You know, I just skim read it. But when I read it again, I thought, wow, what a great book, you know. So those, and then uh, very soon after that, I mean, he told me to read as many books as I could on his shelf, which is what I did over the, the, the following, the subsequent two and a half years before I left South Africa to come to London. I read just about every book I could get my hands on on his shelf and he had a couple of hundred books at least wow. and um, I read the first three books I read that he told me was Think and Grow Rich uh, Mind Power by John Kehoe and You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay and um, and I began to practice you know what I read in that book and then he gave me a cassette tape by Brian Tracy and I remember I started listening to Brian Tracy near the end of 1988 and he's and on the psychology of, of personal achievement I think it was called yes and um, and he used to say in that cassette tape Brian Tracy used to say listen you know, your self-esteem is directly related to your level of success in life. People with a higher self-esteem are always the ones who usually succeed and people are very popular and have lots of friends and healthy and live longer, etc. And he said, uh, I remember the very first exercise I tried to, uh, I say tried because I wasn't successful in, in actually ex- executing the exercise. But he said, stand in front of the mirror and say, look in the mirror and say, I, I like myself. So I, tr- I stood in front of the mirror and I, I couldn't do it. Oh, <laughs> because my self-esteem was so low. Wow. And um, I just couldn't do it. You know? And I tried for ages you know, to do that. And eventually, you know, I managed to start doing it. You know? But my, it was a uh, oh, while, wow, much longer, la- much, much later. Uh, but eventually I started doing it. It felt very uncomfortable, but I just kept doing it. I kept doing it. But that was my very first introduction to personal development. And I loved it. I fell in love with what I was reading. I thought, wow, this stuff is great. Why don't they teach us this in school? You know, if, they te- if I'd come across this information at, at eight or nine or 10 years of age, you know, I'd, be, I'd be a very different person right now. Um, 
So uh, I, I guess getting that Think and Grow Rich book then was a real defining moment in terms of the direction your life has taken ever since that, that moment. Yes, it was, it was the beginning of, of the beginning, I think, because um, before that, because when I came out of the army, I had lots of, I had a lot of money in, the, in my bank account because when you, obviously when you go into the army, you open a bank account and, and then you get paid every month. And I was always away on an operation of some kind, um, whether there were mock operations or whether I was down in Cape Town and during the 1986 riots or whether I was in Namibia on the, on the border or whatever. And when I came out of the army, I had all this money in the bank and I'd been paid, um, danger pay while I was in Angola and I proceeded to drink my money away, um, slowly but surely. But when I was red thinking we're rich. It was the first time that anybody had ever, I'd ever heard any discussion or had a discussion about uh, turning ideas into tangible assets or, or creating wealth. And thinking we're rich is a lot of stuff on, on wealth, but there's also a lot of stuff on just you know, being successful in all endeavors, really, and how to take your ideas and turn them into tangible assets. And that was the very first introduction. So I became very, very excited when I read that book. And I read it three times, actually, wow. in a very short space of time. And I remember it made me so excited that I actually couldn't sleep and I was having severe mood swings. So, you know, I was obviously dealing with what I was going through and all this guilt and I was very angry and I was drinking a lot and I was also taking a lot, I was smoking a lot of marijuana and I started taking other drugs, harder drugs, um, and I was very unhappy. But this book kind of like, you know, ignited something in me and I began to think, wow, you know, this is great. You know, if I could take what I'm learning in this book and, and begin to apply it, then I could actually, you know, my life could actually take on a new meaning. You know, it could... At some stage in the future, it was very vague, you know, uh, it wasn't, I didn't form a very clear picture at that time, but it kind of, it was the beginning of the beginning for me. I thought, wow, you know, if I could get more of this kind of information, I think perhaps, you know, I could actually, I could uh, turn things around for myself. You know, I could get to a place where I could learn to how to be happy again, you know. Wow. Wow. So, so what came next then in terms of obviously you came to London and when, when did you start your kind of career? How did it transition from those moments where you began your journey of self-development. Yeah, I think the next major turning point for me was when I was in London. I'd been here for about four years, and I was, and, and it was 1994, I remember, and a friend of mine intro- invited me to a, to a talk and said, listen, there's someone doing a presentation. It was a Tuesday evening, I remember, and, um, and this person said, there's someone doing a presentation in Paddington at the Hilton Hotel in Paddington near the station. And uh, you should come and check it out. So I said, okay, cool. And I only went, the only reason I went is because the person that invited me was hot. And, <laughs> and it was a female. And I was fancied my chances there. So I only went, I thought, well, it's going to give me a chance to spend time with her. So I went to this talk. But from the moment this person started talking, I was hooked. And I thought, wow, this is fascinating. And that was an introduction. That evening was an introduction to the Landmark Forum. Oh, yes. And, and I immediately signed up for the forum that night. And... Um, and I enrolled on the forum, and then shortly after that, a couple of months after that, I was on the forum. It was a four-day, four and a, it's a four-and-a-half-day weekend, so it's like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, sorry, it's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then a Tuesday evening. I'm not sure if it's still structured like that, but that's how it was structured then. And then on the Tuesday evening, what you do is you come back on the Tuesday evening, and, you, and they, they encourage you to invite people, your friends, and um, who have, um, you know, and by that stage, I mean, it was what, I think it was 24 hours after the weekend was over, roughly, um, 24 to 36 hours later. And, and, but that weekend had such a massive impact on me that I actually arrived on the Tuesday evening with at least 15 of my friends, wow. um, <laughs> none of whom enrolled on the course because obviously that Tuesday evening is about enrollment. Yeah. But, but they were able to – they de- definitely did notice a change in me over the course of that weekend. And that Tuesday evening, um, I stood up and I gave a testimonial. I remember I was uh, – it was quite a – um, an emotional testimonial about what I'd 
been through over the weekend. But it was a it was a it was a great introduction to you know personal development and uh, the next step for me, I think. And then and then I went on and did the advanced course two years later in 1996. And then that 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 advanced course was. Um, was the first time that Angola resurfaced for me, and I and I, I had suppressed it, and it and it resurfaced, but I was I refused to deal with it, so I just pressed it down again. Uh, but I was reading right through the nineties, uh, from the time I arrived in London. I bought the first book I bought in nineteen ninety when I arrived in London was Unlimited Power by Tony Robbins. That was my first introduction to Tony, and I bought two cassette tapes, and that was also my very first introduction to le- to neuro linguistic programming, and I'd never heard of NLP before. And I bought this book, Unlimited Power. I read the back cover. It sounded interesting. And Tony talks about NLP and in, in, uh, Unlimited Power. And I thought it was a fantastic book. Um, so I was reading right through the 90s. And uh, I got involved in Landmark, as I say. And, as, and then I went through the whole curriculum um, through the 90s. And then in 1998, I took Landmark. I was uh, very keen to take Landmark to South Africa. And I thought this would be a great technology, a great, just great education for South Africa. Because it's all, I, I, have you done Landmark? I haven't done that, no. No. Yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, it is a really good, it's a great program, um, and uh, I still recommend it to to people today. I think um, you know, and I've got a lot of friends who have done it. But in 1998, I thought, wow, this would be so good for South Africa. You know, just in terms of what was going on in South Africa and and the Truth and Reconciliation program that was 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 happening in the country at the time. And um, so I got together with a couple of other South Africans here in London who who I'd met through Landmark, and I said, hey, listen, guys, why don't we you know, let's let's set up a forum in South Africa, and we did, and we we ran the uh, we encouraged uh, we got one of the top forum leaders to come out to South Africa, and we had like 300 people in the room in Cape Town. It was life transforming for myself and everyone who was involved and everyone who was in the room, and so um, I was very proud of the fact that I helped to establish Landmark there in South Africa, and it's gone on from strength to strength. Uh, but I think the next turning point for me was in 1999. Massive, massive uh, turning point for me was that's when I did my very first live. Uh, seminar with Tony, um, Tony Robbins, and uh, it was 1999, and I was at a very tough place in my life. I was very unhappy. I was broke. I was, uh, you know, living on my mate's couch. I was working 80 hours a week. I was earning 30 pound an hour at Credit Suisse, or at the time, 25 pound an hour at Credit Suisse First Boston, and I was working every spare hour I could every week, uh, maximum overtime. Yeah. And uh, I was making great money, but I was broken. I was um, using cocaine every day just to get through the day because I was so unhappy and suicidal. Wow. And I was frustrated because I had all this knowledge, Dan. I'd been reading all these books and I'd been to quite a few workshops by that stage. And I used to go hang out at St. James's Church in Piccadilly and listen to as many people as I could, you know. Yeah. Um, and they used to have a lot of great speakers coming through London at that time. And um, But I was frustrated because I, I, you know, the knowledge was in my head. It was intellectual, but I wasn't actually living it. I wasn't doing anything with it. And right. I was living um, a life that I had long since grown tired of, where I was just, you know, using drugs on a regular basis and hanging out in toxic environments, um, had toxic relationships, and which none of it was serving me. And I had this dream that I wanted to be happy. You know, I just thought, hey, you know what? I, I'm sure I could be happy, and I'm sure I could actually have a great life. Um, and uh, you know, and and I didn't really know how to go about it. And then I went to UPW uh, in Cardiff, which is Unleash Your Power Within, as you know, yes. and Tony's flagship program. It was my first time I'd seen Tony Robbins live, and it just had a major effect on me, a major impact on my life. And I actually was fortunate to have a one-on-one with Tony, an intervention with Tony during that weekend. And in those days, if any of your listeners are listening to this, anyone who's listening who's been to UPW who's seen Tony live, they'll know that he he runs massive workshops now. He's got like at least you know five, six thousand people in in a room at one time, and sometimes a whole lot more. 
But in those days, it was only, you know, there must have been about, if there were 2,000, it was a lot. But I would say it's probably about 1,700 people there. Yes. Uh, because I remember looking around and thinking, wow, there's a lot of people here, right? There's almost <laughs> 1,000 people here. <laughs> and, um, you know, maybe even 1,500 people. But there wasn't more than 2,000. And, and he used to take a lot of, you know, he would do a lot of shares and that after Dickens. And you've done the Dickens process. And we're not going to talk about that here. And people are probably wondering what that is if they don't know what it is. But uh, we'll leave it for people to experience that in person. Yes. Uh, but after that process, you know, I don't know what, how it happened, but suddenly the mic was in my hand and I was talking <laughs> to him. And, um, and next minute he started asking me questions. And before I knew it, you know, we, we, we were having this conversation and I was talking about Angola and, and oh, it was just crazy. And then next minute, you know, we, I, I, I remember um, uh, he, emotionally I was moving. I was so moving between so many emotions. And before I knew it, I was feeling like relieved. You know, there was like a massive sense of relief. Like I'd really let go of a massive weight, wow. you know, and, um, and I just felt, comp- you know, I was overcome with amazing gratitude and I started expressing how grateful I was for him and for what he had done for me, you know, over the preceding 45 minutes. And, and also I was uh, ex- expressing my gratitude for what I had got from his book and his cassette tapes and how at some of the darkest times in the 90s, I used to contemplate suicide, but then I would put his cassette tape and I would listen to his voice and that had, that had saved me a lot during the 90s. Uh, many times and I started expressing this gratitude for him and I was very emotional I was crying at the time etc and next minute he jumped off the stage and he came running towards me and I ran towards him and I ended up in his arms you know <laughs> yeah correct. and uh, and then he put me down and he grabbed my head and he said and this was a, a just I'll never forget this experience and even just talking about it now is quite incredible but he grabbed he put me down was I'd wrap myself around him like a monkey because you know he's a big guy right <laughs> yeah. six foot seven and um and he put me down, he grabbed my head and he looked into my eyes and he said, listen, he said, you know, it's time to release the past, right? Take the lessons and use them to empower yourself and empower other people. And he said, now, nah, the most important thing for you right now, he said to me, and he said, it's time for you to be loved, right? It's time to let love back into your heart. And he was like, it was like he was just pouring it into me through his eyes. Wow, I can imagine. And, uh, and it was an incredible experience. I mean, I've never felt anything like it. And then, and then he said, now, nah, he said, now, nah, turn around and let these people love you. And I turned around and there were just, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people on their feet. And you've been in that kind of environment yourself. You know what it's like when you watch an intervention. Yes, I've seen it. And it just, the love hit me like a Mack truck. And it just, I mean, I even almost fell over. And he was like (laughs) standing behind me. And then that was an amazing experience. And when I went back to my life uh, on the the Monday, um, I rode back to London because it was down in Cardiff. And uh, I remember I, took, I, I rode out there on my motorcycle and I remember riding back on my motorcycle the whole way back and inside my helmet, I just kept, you know, I was just saying the incantation, I am the voice. Now I am the voice over and over. And when I got back to London, I just wrote down everything I was going to change and everything I was no longer committed to and everything I was committed to. And then I just went back to my environment where I used to frequent all my old buddies that I used to hang out with and doing things that I was tired of doing now for a long time. You know, number one was taking drugs. At a long time, I kept telling myself, I need to stop taking drugs and I need to get clean. And I was just, you know, doing that for years. I remember I started smoking marijuana at 14 and now I was in my 30s and I was still taking drugs and now I was doing it on a daily basis and now it included drugs like cocaine and ecstasy irregularly. And I was just tired of it. I was unhappy. I was unhealthy. I wasn't working out at the time. And that weekend changed everything for me. And I just wrote everything down. And I went back to my environment and I told my buddies what I was going to do. And I told them that they wouldn't see me for a long time. And they needed just to give, they needed to give me some space because there were certain things I wanted to do. And I'd been telling some of them about what I wanted to do, you know, and mm. how I was into personal development. They knew about it and how I wanted to become a speaker. 
And my, my initial desire to become a speaker was uh, started when I did Landmark, you know, and I saw the, speak, the Landmark Forum leader and I thought, wow, I would love to do what that guy's doing. And now it was five years later and I still wasn't doing it. I was completely unhappy. And that weekend was a major turning point because the following year after that weekend, uh, I, I mean, I got clean immediately. I stopped hanging out with, in those environments. And 13 months later, my life looked so different. I mean, I was now working at Credit, um, sorry, I moved from Credit Suisse to Citibank. I was earning more money per hour now. I was on 30 or 35 pound an hour. I was working four days on, four days off. And in those four days off, I was just studying and I was just starting to share my story and looking for places where I could actually grow, you know. And I was actively working on the information that I'd studied. You know? And I was practicing what I'd learned in UPW. And uh, I mean, 13 months later, I'd paid off all my debt. I had money in the bank and my life looked completely different. I started hanging around with new people. I was going to the Yes Group in London every single month. Uh, I'd made new friends. Uh, life was so different and I was in a completely different state emotionally. You know, I was like, it was like I was a different person altogether. People who knew me from my past, they just couldn't, when they bumped into me after that, they, 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 some of them found it hard to recognize me. They just, wow. they couldn't, they said, wow, it's, you know, you're like two different people, you know? Um, and I think the most important thing I got from that was just that actually, you know what? I could, one day I could be happy again. You know, I could really just heal that experience. And that was the beginning of that healing, you know? Um, and as you know, I went right through the whole leadership program and I went through the mastery program and, um, you know, I didn't have the money at the time, but I found it and it was the, it was, I'm so glad I did because it was the, it made such a difference to my life, you know, over the, uh, and what's happened since then has just gone from strength to strength. And then what I did was I made a decision that I wanted to actually, st I was going to start speaking. So I looked for an opportunity to speak. And the first opportunity I was given was actually at the London Yes Group. And, um, I gave my very first talk there and I remember, uh, it was, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't know what I was doing really. I just, I just really spoke from my heart. I had no real structure or anything. Like that. And I was all over the place, but the audience seemed to love it. And obviously I told some of my story and then, um, I thought, okay, cool. I'm going to, I actually, I'm going to, I enjoyed it so much. Um, and that was also a very, I think it was a great moment for me because I remember when I was 14 at boarding school, I was, I was asked by my teacher to give a talk in front of the whole school and I didn't want to do it. And she made me do it. And I was obviously one of the boys who was chosen. There were 12 boys chosen uh, yeah. from different years. And I was 14. I just arrived at this boarding school. I'd only been there for six weeks and she chose me. And I was a tiny guy with low self-esteem and I hated every minute. And I thought, I will never, ever do that again. <laughs> and now I was, you know, many years later and I gave this talk in front of, um, that's the about 400 people at the S group that night. And um, they used to get great numbers back then. And... Uh, I thought, wow, I love that experience. That was amazing. <laughs> thought, so then I thought, you know what? I'm going to learn how to do this properly. You know, and this is going to be, this is what I'm going to do. You know, this is my, this is going to be my commitment. You know, this is going to be my choice of vocation. And, uh, and very shortly after that, I went back to South Africa and I just, yeah, I, I went from strength to strength, I built a massive speaking business and a training business. And I did lots of great training for, you know, corporate training for, for massive brands, you know, big, some of the world's biggest brands that were based in South Africa. Um, ended up working with the Natal Sharks rugby team for a whole season. Uh, and then that led to some work with the Springboks. Uh, and just, yeah, it just was amazing. And I was a fantastic journey, you know, and it's just, it's been a fascinating journey ever since, you know, and I've met some amazing people. I mean, obviously going to UPW, meeting people like yourself and, you know, we've, you and I, we could rattle off a whole bunch of names between us, you know, people that we met through that environment, which has been a real blessing. Absolutely. And I'm sure you would agree with me. Um, and, you know, just when you start hanging around in that kind of environment and you start doing the kind of work that we're doing, that you and I are both doing, uh, which is empowering other people, you know, through your own story, um, 
it's amazing how laugh, where laugh goes, doesn't it? Absolutely. And from that moment then, when you actually gave that speech at the S Group, how, how long have you been speaking for now? You've been speaking for... Was yeah, that four? was 15 years ago. Wow. So that was, that was in 2000. And, um, and yeah, and I remember in 2002, uh, sorry, that was in 2001 I gave that speech. And then 2002, yeah, so about 14 years. In 2002, I gave my first talk in South Africa and my first paid talk. I remember I got a check for my first paid talk. And I'd given a number of free talks before that in South Africa to, in different environments. I mean, I was um, – the first thing I did, I arrived back in South Africa and I started going to – because I wanted to go back to South Africa. I'd been away for a long time. So the reason, the reason I decided to go back was I'd been away for 12 years. I'd been through all, this, all these programs and I thought, you know, it's time to go home and spend some time with my parents. They haven't seen, seen me for a long time. And also, um, you know, I'd, I felt that it would be a good step for me to go home and, and do some healing for myself, right? Because mm-hmm. when I left South Africa in 1990, I left, you know, feeling, you know, with this massive guilt uh, that I had about being in Angola. What I did, unfortunately, I had to kill lots of people, you know, uh, it was rough. So I left, I ran away from South Africa, you know, and I thought I'll never go back there. And that was 12 years later, and I had this massive transformation. I thought, you know what, I'd love to go back to South Africa, and I'd love to be part of the transition that's taking place there. I, I'm sure I must, uh, there must be lots of my buddies who have never got over what we went through. And, and subsequently, I worked with a lot of them. And... Um, you know, we I rekindled some of those friendships that I uh, with the guys that I'd spent in my platoon, who were in my platoon in, in Angola, etc., and in my company. And um, I told them what I was doing, and I told them my own experience, and I shared some of the stuff that I'd studied, etc., and I shared some of the NLP that I'd studied, and it, it made a big difference. You know, and I worked with some of my buddies who were ex-police military, uh, ex-police personnel, and ex-military personnel, which and I and I really, it 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 was so rewarding for me. And um, so I made the decision I was going to go back there, and uh, yeah, it just. It was brilliant, you know, just, um, and I remember getting my first check for my first paid talk and I thought, wow, 800 Rand, right? It was only 800 Rand, but it was, um, I didn't want to take that check because I, it was a small community of people and they, re- and I just said, listen, why don't you just make it out to a charity of your choice or my choice? And they said, no, we want you to have it because we really, you know, we really want you to feel that you, you know, we really value your time here, etc. And I said, okay, thank you. I'm going to take it and I'm going to donate this 800 Rand too much to a charity of my choice, and which I did. I donated it to an AIDS orphanage. But I remember getting that check thinking, wow, this is my first paid talk, right? And then um, that was in, in um, it was about probably about February or March of 2002. And then I remember in 2004, uh, two years later, I remember I made a million rand in one month. Wow. My and I remember, thinking, I remember thinking, wow, a million rand. Now, a million rand is, is, you know, it's not, I mean, if you convert it to any other currency, it's not a lot of money considering the current exchange rate of South Africa. The, the, the economy is very poor at the moment. But, but having a million rand in South Africa is like having a million pounds in England or a wow. million dollars in America. Wow. Because a million rand, you know what I mean? Jesus, that stuff goes far in South Africa. And I remember thinking, wow, a million rand in one month. And I remember when I got back to South Africa in 2001, November 2001, and I began to lay my plans and the first thing I did when I arrived there is I started, I, I seeked out the speakers who were currently based in South Africa and who were operating in South Africa. And I, and I went to listen to them speak, you know, in different environments. And I did whatever I could to get in front of the speakers. I listened to what they were speaking about. And I thought, okay, good. They're all based in Johannesburg. No one's doing this in Durban. And, um, and obviously, Durban, where I'm from, and people say, well, Johannesburg's where the money is. And I thought, well, Durban, there's lots of money in Durban too. And that's where I'm from. And I'm going to operate from Durban. That's where I'm going to start. You know, that's, I've grew up there. That's where I'm going to operate from. And I remember two years later when I made a million rand in one month and I was, by now I had developed some relationships and established relationships in the training industry. And I was, I was part of a, um, we started to talk about forming a, an association of professional speakers in South Africa at the time. There wasn't a, an association like that. 
and it wasn't a coaching association out there like that either. So I started forming relationships and we started forming groups where we could come together and discuss the future of South Africa in terms of speaking and coaching in the country. And um, I remember some of the people that I was had developed these relationships with who were doing the same thing as me. And they, they I mean, all of them said to me, Jesus, how did you make a million rand in one month? <laughs> and I just said, you know, I said, well, I just, I'm on a mission, you know, and I just, it, I think it's about making it, wanting to make a real difference and wanting to add real value and not buying into, you know, beliefs and paradigms, you know. And I said, all of you have got a paradigm about how much money people will spend in South Africa. And I said, I don't have that paradigm here. You know, I think that, you know, people will pay for something if they find there's value. And and true enough, you know, people paid for my programs, you know, and, uh, and you know, they were at the time I remember thinking, well, you know, they, they, it's a lot more than other people are charging. But, you know, no one else is going to be doing what I'm doing, you know, because I've got that inter, I've got that international exposure. You know, I had been trained all around the world and I'd been living abroad. And at the time in South Africa, it was very new. You know, um, it was only just starting out. We and South Africa is usually always 20 or 50 years behind the rest of the world. Um, so although this was a big thing in the UK and in America, you know, personal development and going to workshops and et cetera. In the, in the South Africa, it was fairly new. So it was, it was a fantastic time I had. And I spent seven years there and it was great. And then in 2008, I decided to come back to the UK and, and you know, go international. Um, and I've spoken in different countries now and it's fantastic. You know, it's just, it's, I, love, I love doing what I do. And I mean, you love doing what you do and we're in the same industry and it's a great industry because people are hungry for knowledge these days. You know, hungry for the right kind of knowledge that's going to make a difference. You know, and as well as the, as well as the infrastructure or the, the the processes, so they can implement that knowledge. You know, and so they so they actually shows a result in their life. You know, and they want that sooner rather than later. So to be able to offer that kind of knowledge and that kind of expertise, etc., is you know, is a blessing really. I think one of the key things actually, Alan, is you know, we spoke early on at the beginning about <clears throat> fear and how. Um, you know, many people, like you're saying, the day-to-day, the day-to-day living that most people have and, and a lot of the fears that people have that hold them back and the limiting beliefs that hold them back are usually formed from a very different environment to the environment that you experienced uh, in Angola and subsequent to that in terms of your own challenges. But I think what I respect about what, what, what you've done is, you know, you took some deliberate steps to overcome those challenges. And I think for anyone who's listening to the podcast, you don't have to have been to war to take action to to heal some of your own internal wounds i guess it would be one way of putting it and i think what you've managed to do is take your uh, uh, inverted commas mess and make it your message you know you've been able to transform your circumstances into a into a powerful career a speaking career and and really develop and hone your own message um through um the personal development you've been through but then into your own speaking career and then refine that message based upon your own experiences i think that's that's so, so powerful and a huge respect to what you've done there. But I think, as I was saying with, with the, the listeners here, it's about taking action on those things that are holding you back. Yeah. You don't have to have been to war to have that kind no, of experience. No, I would agree. I would agree with you on that, definitely. And I say that often to people. I say, you know, and also when I'm doing my talks, I say, listen, you know, obviously, you know, you don't have to have been to war. You don't have to have been in a situation in Gola like I was. But everybody, every day is fighting their own battle in their head. Um, which actually might seem like a war to some people exactly yeah it does i mean some people they do they it seems like they are at war especially if they're having a you know challenges in their relationships at home or with their kids or with their or their you know in their business or whatever and at the time you know people can seem like they they are experiencing their own version of hell um but i would agree with you it's all it's 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 just about looking at that situation i like i like what you said there right turning a mess into a message i've heard that before it's a great it's a great little um 
you know, phrase. And uh, well, a friend of mine used to say the same thing to me. I'm in a very successful businesswoman in South Africa. She said, yeah, you've got to take your tests and turn them into a testimony, you know. And um, so I think, and every day we all tested, you know, and tests come in different shapes and forms. You know, some people will come in, in, a, in a broken relationship or, or you know, in bankruptcy and other people it's going to war, you know, so it's, it's, but it's, it, it doesn't really matter what the test looked like. It's not the context that makes the difference. It's really what you do with it, you know, that makes the difference. It's how you interpret it and what kind of meaning you give to it, you know. And I think some of the decisions, you know, that, yeah. mo- that moment where you decided the things that you were going to commit to and the things that you were going to commit not to doing at the same time yeah. were, were some powerful decisions that you made in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on now. So you've obviously had a highly successful speaking career over the last 14 years. How does someone go about starting their own speaking career? Well, I've, the first thing is you, um, you've got to, someone's got to, if somebody's just starting out, they're going to say, right, what's my message? You know, um, you know, wh- what is it I want to talk about? Because the, it's a massive industry and it's very, very competitive and there's loads of people on loads, talking on loads of different topics. So you, someone's going to say, well, what's my message? And, um, you know, and what's my target market? You know, what, where do I want to speak? You know, because you'll get people who want to speak on the stage and, and sell from the stage. You get people who only want to speak in a corporate environment. You get people who want to do key- keynotes. Some people want to do training. It's, it's, there's, you know, there's so many variations, but I think got to get a core message and you look at what's my target market and then, and then work on, you know, the delivery of that and what's it going to look like, you know, how's that, what's the structure of that talk. And then it's just a case of getting out there and saying, right, where can I deliver this talk? And in the beginning, I think all speakers, a lot of people don't like to speak for free. I don't mind speaking for free and I still speak for free. Um, but when I say for free, uh, there's usually some kind of value value engagement or value swap, right? Yes. So, um, but in the beginning, if you were starting out as a speaker, then you're going to speak for free because nobody's going to pay you uh, to speak if they if you're starting out and know and you haven't really established yourself or you don't you know you're not not known as a speaker yet, or um, and usually that will gonna, that's going to come with practice and that's and when people start paying you, it's because you've got a, you know, you, re, you people will refer you happily, or they've heard you've, they've heard of you, etc. Or you've developed some kind of message, etc. And then you can, you know, you can go into a corporate environment, perhaps. Let's, if you take corporate environment as one example, and you, you can give people a, um, you know, you can show them what your experience is, you can tell them who you've spoken for before, etc. And you tell them what you're going to be, what kind of value you're going to be imparting, and how it's going to make a difference to their workforce. Then you know you can start charging for that kind of stuff. But in the beginning, all speakers. There's nothing wrong with speaking for free, and, and you take all the greatest speakers in the world, all of them at, at the beginning of their career, they spoke for free. They spoke wherever they could. I remember when I started speaking, I would speak wherever I could. I would speak at rotary meetings. I would speak at line club meetings. I would speak at any kind of meeting. Uh, you know, I remember even speaking at a, at a, at a rotary meeting, for, for and they looked like everybody in this rotary meeting was – you know, it must have been over 80. And, uh, you know, some of them were falling asleep in their chair, etc. But it was just a great, it was a great opportunity for me to practice what I was speaking about and to practice engaging with the audience, you know. Um, so you speak wherever you can in the beginning because what you want to do is you want to develop your message and you want to develop the ability to deliver it in a way where it actually, uh, you know, it's, it engages the audience, right? And it gets them thinking and it also it, it, engage, it, it empowers them to take some kind of action. Um, yeah, I, that's the beginning of anybody's speaking career really is, you know, develop your message, find out what your core audience is, what your target audience, and then you've got to just get out there and practice it and practice it and practice it. And then how does someone go about start commanding fees for their work once they've kind of honed their message a little bit and they've, they're clear on who they want to work with? How do they start to get paid work? And yeah, that's a great question because there's, 
Because if you look now how the speaking industry has changed so much now in the last 10 years, right? Um, because now you got there's you get a lot of events where there's where you get um, you know a, a variety of speakers, right? A multi-speaker event, and and what they will do is a lot of those speakers are actually paying to be on that stage if it's a big stage, and then they're sharing some of their profit with the with the organizer, the event organizer, and they're selling from the stage. So they're actually not getting paid to speak there. But if you take uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, you take people who who are doing keynotes in a corporate environment, they're actually getting paid to be at that. At that, to speak at that event, so that a company will pay that com- that person to come in and speak to them about a specific subject to their employees, and they'll often pay for their flight. So, I mean, I've been flown all over the place, which is great. You know, you get your flight paid for, your hotel paid for, you know, and then you you they, and then you get paid, and you also usually get paid in advance. You know, so uh, you know, I remember, you know, a lot of my talks. What I do is I, I have a, a I'll I'll get paid before I even arrive. You know, it's got to be paid before I even arrive there. Uh, but that's a different environment. And that it takes a lot of hard graft, a lot of hard graft to get into that kind of uh, environment where you're going to be speaking in a corporate environment. You've got to be a very good speaker and you've got to have a great message and you've got to have something that's actionable and something that has uh, obviously benefit for the client. Um, and then you've just got to get out there and do whatever you can to get that first paid speaking invi- paid speaking engagement. And a lot of the time, it just comes from people who know you. So people say, "Yeah, oh, it's not." You know, people say it's it's not what you do; it's it's who you know. But it's not. That's not entirely true these days. It's who knows you, right? Yeah. Because you can know lots of great people, but unless somebody knows you, right, you often won't get that call. And if people know you, and they you know, you've impacted them in some way and they, they're happy to refer you to somebody. You know, usually it, all it takes is, you know, just a referral sometimes. And that's how you can often lead to your first paid gig. And when you get that first paid gig under the belt, then that breeds confidence, obviously. Um, but it's really, it's just a case of picking up the phone. I think in the beginning, all I did was I just picked up the phone. I went to as many meetings as I could. I arranged as many meetings as I could. I networked wherever I could. And whenever I met somebody who was working in a big corporate environment, I remember one of the first uh, uh, big corporate environments I had for Forbes out in South Africa. Uh, I met somebody who worked there and uh, I became friends with them. I developed a relationship, et cetera. And, uh, and then I just, I said, listen, you know, I would love to um, come and speak at your company. You know, uh, do you guys ever hire speakers? And she said, oh, I think we, oh, we've had, had people come in the past to speak about various subjects, et cetera, different things. We don't do it often. And I said, well, who would be the best person? And I just, and then it's about finding the best person and then developing that relationship and then saying, listen, can I come and have a meeting with you? And I would always arrange face-to-face meetings. These days, we operate very differently, don't we, with the digital world. Mm-hmm. But I do prefer face-to-face meetings. I know we're doing this by using digital technology right now, but, and, and it's working very well. However, I, I, I'm that kind of person where I would, I would actually prefer to sit down face-to-face across the table from someone and, and get to know them and let them get to know me, you know? Um, so they can see what I'm, what they're going to be getting if they're going to be, if we, especially if we're discussing the subject of me coming to speak to their corporate environment or coming to speak to their employees, um, you know. And usually the people who are handling those kinds of things are are in HR. So, um, you know, it's it's about finding the right people, connecting with them, and just you know picking up the phone, sitting in front of people, going to network meetings, networking with the right kind of people, and then hoping that somebody one day someone's going to say, hey, listen. That person is a great person. You know, they've got a great energy, et cetera. Perhaps you should talk to them. Um, and it's just having that belief, I think. You know, um, there's lots of procedures and lots of processes. But again, end of the day, it's got to be backed up with a drive and a determination and a belief that it's going to happen. You know, that, you know, 
I believe I'm going to be a speaker. You know, I believe that I'm going to be a paid speaker. I, I believe it's going to happen one day. You know, and 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 just hustling and hustling and hustling to make that happen, and then eventually your breaks come. Awesome. And um, I mean, there's a couple of things you you mentioned during during your uh, your response about you know corporations are looking for specific results. And yes. I think, you know, if your message matches that specific result, then that's going to put you in a good favorable position. And I think the second thing you mentioned really is about once you've refined your message, it's about refining the delivery. I think, you know, a, a corporation or, you know, a major event provider will be looking for someone who can deliver the result, but they also look for someone who creates a lasting impact. And the way, yes. the way that's achieved is through the delivery of the message. And you know, in fact, you know, you can, you could even deliver a relatively general result, but if you deliver it in such a way that blows away the audience, yeah, you'll always be the one that gets remembered. So yes. what, what is it that makes someone a great speaker when it comes to maximizing the power of their message? Yeah, that's a, that is a, that's a great question. And that's a question I ask myself regularly because, you know, when you, you watch great speakers and I've been, you know, watching great speakers for a long time now and, um, and I, I watch how they operate on the stage and how they interact with the audience. And I think I'm always asking what makes this person so amazing? I mean, whenever, when I watched Tony Robbins for the first time, I thought, wow. And I'd seen quite a few people speak before then. And that was in 1999, and I saw him for the first time. I thought, gee whiz, this guy is extraordinary. I mean, he's just the level of energy, the level of presence, um, the awareness, um, the ability to be completely in the moment, you know, and, and real, you know, um, and transparent, I would say, uh, to a degree. Because you, you've got to be, you know, in the moment, present, transparent, and just be able to bear your soul. And I think what a lot of people... When I watch a lot of people speak now, and I go to a lot of events, um, and I speak at, you know, you know, if I speak at an event where there's more than one speaker, uh, and I watch the other speakers, and I think what people are challenged, a lot of speakers are challenged by the ability that they actually, they, they can't actually be themselves in front of that audience. You know, there's, what they're doing is they, they're putting something on instead of just being themselves. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, they're not being authentic. Yeah. And, and authentic is a, is a word now that a lot of people are throwing around, et cetera. And, you know, hey, you got to be authentic and authenticity, et cetera. But authentic just means being real, right? Yeah. And being real means you're not afraid to bear your soul. And, and that means you, you know, you, and a great speaker, you, you, to answer that question, I know we're going about it in a long way, but you say, what makes a really great speaker? Um, there's a lot of things. It's, it's the way they use their voice. It's the intensity. It's, um, you know, there's a there's a certain energy about them when they show up in front of people. Uh, you know, they. I mean, if you take let's take some really big big great names that everyone will know. You take someone like a Martin Luther King or a JFK or um, or Earl Nightingale or you know or Jim Rohn or you know uh, Gandhi. You know, famous people, Mandela. You know, and and people who have become great speakers, Oprah, etc. You know, they there's a there's a real there's a vulnerability about them. At, at the same time, there's also they're very aware of what their role or what they're doing, right? They're very aware of who they are and what their message is, and they're intense with that. And they very at the same time, there's also a love there. You you get a sense of the fact they care about you, they care about the people who are listening. Um, and it's often been said that nobody really cares what you say, but they really it's about how you make them feel, right? Mm. So uh, there's it's a it's a it's quite difficult to answer that question, I think. Because there's so many things that come into it. Um, but what really makes a great speaker? It's just, it's how they show up on that stage, I think. And I think when I coach and I do some work with some speakers and 
you know, uh, the, the feedback I'll usually give people is like, you know, if there's something that you need to clear from your past, if there's something that you, uh, I always tell, and I say, what's going to make you even more impactful on the stage and one it's going to make you even more powerful on the stage is if, you, if you've made your peace with yourself about everything in your life. Um, and that can be quite difficult because we always, you know, there's always stuff, right? We, it's like peeling an onion. However, if you're not afraid to stand up there and say, you know what, this is who I am and this is, this is my message. I believe in this message emphatically. I've got a lot of conviction and it's always about conviction. I heard that word the other night and somebody said to me, you've got a lot of conviction. Like I gave a talk the other night in Wimbledon it was about 40 or 50 people in the room, et cetera, and they're all property people. And, um, it, uh, and, you know, afterwards, you know, I had a number of them come up to me afterwards, and one of the people said, you know, you've got a lot of conviction about your message. It really, you know, and I said, yeah, I have, because I believe it, you know, my, because I, it's not just, I'm not just saying that. I'm not here just to say that because it's just to pass time. I, I really believe that if, you know, if you, if you take what I'm telling you and you apply it, you're going to get the results, right? Because it, it works. So, yeah, it's, Belief in the message, conviction, you know, presence. Presence is a good one, I think. You know, presence, you know, when, you know when someone's in front of you, a speaker is always going to be focusing on the audience. What's in it for the audience? What's in it for the audience? And a lot of speakers, are in, they go internal. They'll change between external, internal. And you can see when someone goes internal. And when they go internal, they, it, it, it breaks the rapport they have with the audience, you know. Um, so they're thinking about themselves as opposed to the audience. Yeah, they might not even be thinking about themselves. They might even just be thinking about what I'm going to say next. Yes. Um, or what's coming next, or 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 is this coming out right? You know, or you know, how does it sound? You and really, you 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 can't be thinking about that. You that you got to take care of all of that before you even get to the stage. You know, um, when you're on the stage, it's just about you know delivering that message and doing it in a way that really you first of all you develop rapport with the audience, obviously, but you got to be completely present and you just got to be you know. There's got to be a, a lot of conviction there, a lot of belief in your message, and there's got to be a lot of love there. I, I use the word love a lot because I think you know you've definitely got to have a lot of love for your audience because uh, in these days you hear a term a lot in our industry now is like bums on seats, right? Yeah. And yep. uh, I read a, a little rant from a friend of mine uh, online the other day, and I had to chuckle, and I agree with him totally. He said, "Listen, if you if you're a speaker, um, and he's also a speaker trainer, and he, he's done a lot of work with Tony. He's one, he's one of Tony's uh, top trainers back in the day, but he's gone on his own now. And I won't mention his name because he's a lovely guy. But um, he said something the other day. He said, if you're thinking of people, delegates, uh, as bums on seats, he said, really, you should get into, the dif- you should get into a different uh, income bracket, right? You should, get in, you should change your job because he said, because the people, you, when you start thinking of people as bums on seats, then you're really you've, lo- you've kind of lost it. You've got to think of these people. These are people, right? And they're looking for something. They, they, they're hungry for, for something that's going to change their life. And if they kind of come to your event, that's how you've got to look at them. These are, these are, these are people. They're not bums on seats. Do you understand what I mean by that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I agree with that, you know, because, and that's where love comes in. It's like, you know, whenever I walk into a room, before I start speaking, I, I'm at the back of the room. Before I get on the stage, I, I look at the room and I put my arms around the room energetically. And energetically, I hug that room and I, and I pour a lot of love into those people before I even get on that stage. So when I get on the stage, they, they feel me before they even hear me. You know? And that's the kind of, that's, I think that's what makes a great speaker is like you feel them before you even hear them. You know, you I think just you feel them. I think that's really powerful and it's such good advice because, you know, whenever I've seen yourself speak, Alan, it's, it's always highly emotionalized. But I think where the conviction comes from, from when I've seen you speak, it's 
It's from having total certainty in your message, but also at the same time, allowing yourself to be vulnerable, allowing yourself to share your own pains, allowing you to share your own uh, stories of transformation. I think when you see the speakers that aren't able to captivate people emotionally, it's when they they don't allow themselves to be at that level of vulnerability that they can share their their own challenges, their own pains. Yes. And it's... um, yeah, it, it, you're right. I think it's it's and vulnerability is an interesting one because whenever we feel vulnerable, we think we we look weak, but other people think we look courageous. You know, that's the that's the paradox of vulnerability. Um, and you said something else too, which leads me to think of something is that you know the, the person who's on the stage is the person who needs the person on the stage. The speaker is leading the audience, right? And and it's like an emotional roller coaster, and people want to be entertained as well as educated. And also people, we are emotion, we are emotional human beings. And whenever we go to a movie, watch a great movie, we love the mix of emotions, right? In a great movie, you have a mix of emotions. One minute you're laughing, next minute you're crying. Uh, next minute you're tense. Next minute you, you know, you, you, it's, it's suspense and then it's fear. And then it's, you know, and that's a great movie. It takes you on an emotional roller coaster. And that's what a great speaker really should do is take people on an emotional roller coaster and get them to places emotionally that they haven't been before, because that's when you think about things that you haven't thought about before, and that's when you make decisions that you haven't made before. Um, and that yeah. ability to be vulnerable, yeah, I would agree with you. It's, it's, that's why I say it's about making peace with yourself and being okay with bearing your soul, you know? Um, you know, and some of the greatest speakers I've ever seen are people who are just, you know, you feel them, as I said, before you hear them. There's just like an energy about them, and they, they uh, you know, they share their message with conviction, and they're happy to share their highs and their lows, you know, uh, a lot of speakers these days, you know, they only talk about the great stuff, you know, they won't really talk about the stuff, the mistakes they made, but I think you can, you, you can, uh, you get a lot of, um, connection with the audience. The audience also is happy to hear about your mistakes too, right? Because they know they want to hear that you're a human being, you know, nobody wants to listen to somebody who's perfect, you know, um, it's a, it creates a, it creates a gap between the audience and the speaker, you know, a speaker is, is also a human being. And, um, there's a lot that goes into it, I think, you know, it's it's a quite a difficult question to answer. I think. Well, there's some there's some great points. I think. Yeah. I think the other thing I observe from seeing many different speakers myself, and uh, something again, I would certainly attribute to yourself, and even even on this podcast at uh, the interview today, is that the ability to tell great stories in, in rich detail. Yes. You know, just just thinking back over what we talked about at the beginning of the the show, where you're describing your time out in Angola, and you know, such rich detail. I'm sure the listeners will agree. You know, you can you can put yourself in the frame. You can put yourself in the picture. You can almost the level of detail you tell the story, not only do you connect with the emotion uh, of being within the experience, you can almost see it and, yeah. and hear it. You know, you're talking about the machine guns and the and the uh, you know the, the planes flying overhead and bombs yeah. being dropped. You know, you can you can feel you can feel like you're in the story. And I think a, a great speaker, in my opinion, has that ability to take people on a journey, not only emotionally but vividly in terms yeah. of that rich detail. And I think that really. It's something you've certainly mastered. I know last time I saw you speak, it was such a powerful experience because, and I, I was taking I was taking notes on the delivery of myself. I, I'm always looking out for delivery now, and you know, as I progress this podcast, I'm now starting to listen to other podcasts, and rather than listen to the content, I'm listening to the delivery and how they're asking questions. But I think having witnessed the, the way you speak, it's that richness of detail when you're taking people on a journey, and that's that's that for me is is one of the most powerful transformative. Uh, skills people could have as a speaker, um, and and again, it all comes back to the points you've you've raised about being certain in your message and being vulnerable and 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 being willing to be real. Um, 
But I think that that ability to connect with the details, you know, so many speakers I've seen, they, they come across, even the message, the message might be fantastic, but it's, it feels rigid because the, the detail, they haven't gone into the richness, the texture yeah. Yeah. That, you can, that you can create through a powerful story. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also it's, yeah, it's, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And, and yeah, you're right. I'm, and while I'm listening to you, I'm also just thinking, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's also you as an, you've sat in an audience many times yourself and you know, and I think, you know, you enjoy being in an audience when the speaker is actually enjoying themselves, you know, um, and the speaker is enjoying himself or herself and they are in the moment. And I think that's probably one of the toughest things to coach a speaker. And I've coached some speakers before and, and it's about, Hey, you know, you've got to be in the moment. You can't, you've got to be right in the moment. And that's also about being able to utilize whatever comes up and being, a, being, being innovative, you know, and not sticking rigidly to, a structure or a script, uh, being flexible, you know, flexibility is power, you know, yeah, the more flexible you can be, the more powerful it is because you can, then you can take the audience wherever you want them to go. Right. Um, and, and I think that's when, like you say, that's when it's most enjoyable. Um, and I would agree with you about the stories, you know, it's, it's stories, you know, people learn so much through stories and I, I know I enjoy it. That's why I've been around Tony now for what, 16 years. And I never get tired of hearing stories. And he, he often tells the same stories because he's teaching the same points. Um, because those stories are so clever at teaching what he teaches. But those stories never get old because the way he tells it, it's so engaging every time he tells them. You know, And I know you've heard him more than once, several times yourself. Mm. And you've heard those stories more than once. And I think you would probably agree that you would enjoy that story the seventh time as much as you enjoyed it the first time, you know? Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, so it's it's it is a it's um it's a great subject though, isn't it? Because uh, even when it comes to one-on-one, you know, um, the ability to express yourself effectively one-on-one, you know, is the big difference between whether you, you know, get the girl or not, or, or get the job or not, you know, um, or get the business or not, right? Power of communication uh, and influence. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 it's such an important skill, you know, and it's something that unfortunately we're not taught when we're young. We don't get taught that at school. And, and, uh, and lots of people don't ever learn how to do it because it's not something that, that you know, that, well, it's, if you think about the majority of people, it's not something they would come across later in life either, you know, unless you actually go out looking for a, a course on communication or you're looking for how to communicate effectively, you know, it's not something that most people ever come across. And, you know, subsequently, or sorry, consequently, as a result of that, you know, if you meet mo- most people, their vocabulary is very limited, you know, and they uh, and the way they express themselves is very limited, and that's a real shame because um, because self expression is such a great art, and when we see it, you know, when we see self expression that's been mastered, right? We we hang on that, we hang on every word, you know, we 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 watch that with absolute, you know, we in awe when we see someone who can express themselves uh, in a masterful fashion, whether that's on screen or on stage, you know. I think the beautiful thing about speaking, though, and the art of communication is it's something that anyone can learn. It's, yes. It's, you know, everyone, like you said earlier on in the interview, everyone starts at the beginning. You know, when you're first establishing a message, you don't have to be the greatest communicator in the world, but you'll only become a great communicator if you get out there and, and, and do the work and speak over and over again. And, and like, you, like you did when you first got started, you know, you were out there just speaking wherever you could, even if it was 80-year-old people who were probably in the wrong room. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, sharing the message, and, and it's just that that practice and repetition and self self uh, awareness that enables you to keep growing and uh, i think that's uh, that's that's a powerful point in itself yeah I, yeah it is you're right and and i think you know there's this just you you can't put money on practice you know practice practice 
I was fortunate because what I did was I, I, I started doing a lot of corporate workshops, you know, and I was doing a lot of short workshops, like three hour, four hour, two hour workshops. And, I, and eventually I was doing them every day and sometimes I would do three a day. And I did that for years, you know, like for a, for a good three or four years where I would do, you know, maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten workshops every week. Um, and I, then I would be speaking on the weekend too. And I did that for such a long time. So, uh, it, but I was loving it, you know, because I was getting paid very well for it. And I don't speak as often as that now because I don't have to. But um, uh, obviously I love to speak and I'll speak nowadays. I'm speaking possibly once or twice a week, every week. Um, and sometimes maybe three times a week. Uh, but you know, when you're speaking like that all the time, it's just such great opportunity to practice because then you can try different things and you can really, uh, and you get the more comfortable you can be in front of an audience, the better it is. That's why I say earlier, I said earlier, you know, it's about, you've got to do, if you want to speak effectively and want to be a powerful speaker who makes a difference, you've got to be somebody who's really comfortable with themselves, comfortable in their own skin. And you've got to do whatever it takes to get comfortable in your own skin in front of people. And unfortunately, if you look at uh, speaking, I mean, I know this subject, is, we, our conversation has gone on to speaking now, and I'm not sure if you wanted to go that way. But, you know, if you look at speaking, public speaking, 40, apparently, this, these are the figures that I've researched, 41% of people in the Western world are afraid of public speaking. That's almost half of, half of everyone alive, right? Yeah. So, and, and most people will put the fear of public speaking above death, the fear of death, um, because they would, do, they would just hate to be up in front of an audience because of the fact that when they get up in front of an audience and it's very, very similar for a lot of people, they just get in their head about how they look, how they sound, what the, you know, all of their own insecurities, you know, just start coming to the forefront of their mind. And, um, it's about getting past that. You know, you look at some of the most powerful speakers in the world today, they, they're so comfortable in front of people, you know, um, they're just so comfortable in front of a camera. They're so comfortable in front of an audience, you know, they look very, very happy up there. And it doesn't matter what question you fired at them. They are so they could take any question because they're just comfortable. They've practiced. They they got to that place where they don't really care. There's nothing too hard, you know. They have, they're not afraid to bear their soul, you know. I think that comes from a couple of things, really. It's one owning who you are as a person and owning your strengths, your weaknesses, and your flaws. And then secondly, um, owning your topic, owning your material, and, and, yeah. and knowing yourself and your message inside and out. Yes, I would agree with that definitely. It's uh, you just got to know your topic inside out. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, I, I you know, just my mind is going all over the place now that you because you, you know, what you mentioned. I just I remember speaking, seeing someone speak the other day, and they had these slides, and every slide was just you know, just so full of data and just so much information, you know, just information overload, and and the writing was so small that you couldn't actually read it from the back of the room. And I just think, wow, this, you know, there must be millions of people out there doing the same thing, you know, death by PowerPoint, as they say, which is a phrase that has been around for many years. Um, but, you know, if you're going to present or speak to win, you know, you've really got to, you've got to, you have to master it, all the, all the things that we both mentioned now, you know. Awesome. And before we go into the quick fire final round, Alan, just um, what's been your proudest moment as a speaker? Uh, wow, well, my proudest moment as a speaker, I would say it was probably st is definitely standing in front of the spring box, I think. Wow. Wow. Um, I remember that day, the first day, uh, you know, I stood in front of the spring and I was actually teaching them about, um, before you, um, continue Alan, um, for the, for the, for the, those who aren't necessarily sports fans, do you want to, do you want to give a bit? Oh of yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The spring box, spring box is, uh, is, is when you become a spring box in South Africa, it's the highest honor you can get as a sportsman. You represent the country of South Africa. And, and although you could be a spring box netballer, 
hockey player, tennis player, swimmer, runner, whatever it is. The Springboks is a nickname that's given to the rugby team, right? The box. Mm. And, um, and obviously, being a rugby fan and growing up in South Africa, I played rugby as a youngster. And I remember I played rugby against people like Joel Stransky and Jeremy Thompson, who became, both of them became great rugby players. Jo- Joel Stransky was in the, rug- the, the Springbok running a rugby team that won the World Cup in 1995. Um, and I played against him at school, and he was, way, he was just ahead of his league, right? Um, he was in a, from another planet. Um, but uh, I remember when I stood in front of them for the first time and I, and I, and I was doing this coaching, this session. It was a three-hour session on physiology, you know, wow. and, um, and how it affects your psychology on the field. And uh, I remember, you know, you can have two conversations at once, as we said earlier. You know, and one of the conversations, I was having, the conversation I was having internally was, oh, my God. Look where I'm standing. I can't believe these are the Springboks in front of me. Look, oh my God, there's John Smith. You know, there's, there's Albert van der Berg. You know, there's, oh, it was just nuts, you know. Um, but at the same time, I had to keep saying, okay, you know, be present, you know. Um, you know? And, but yeah, I, that was just an amazing moment. You know? And I thought, wow. And I had, I had you know, several more of those moments where I did some work with them and it was just great. And then uh, I remember thinking, wow, you know, does it get any better than that, really? Um, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I think, yeah, I think that's probably for me is a great is probably the greatest honor I've had because you know being such a you know, great fan of the Springboks and and I developed some good relationship with some of those guys and which continue to this day. So I'm very blessed for that experience. That was great. Yeah, awesome. We just need to get you in front of the England football team now. <laughs> yeah, they've tried they've tried it with uh, they they actually had someone who did some stuff with with the England football team. Um, uh, yeah, it's a tough one with England. I mean, I love England, you know, because I've been here living here for so long and. You know, as long if South Africa is not playing, then I'm an English fan. Good, you know? good to hear. Um, <laughs> and and you know, I've always wanted England to do so much better because they are such a great. You know, they've always had so many great players, and it's such a. I just think they get such a bad rap from the from the media here in this country. You know. Yeah, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. No. All right, let's dive into the final round. So I've got three quick fire questions for you to wrap up for yeah. today's session. So the first one is if you had to start your speaking career from scratch, mm. knowing everything that you know now, what would be the first thing that you would do? The first thing that I would do if I had to start again from scratch, I think I would probably do, what would I do? I think I would do, I would go and I would do more training with, um, with Joseph Williams in America. Wow. Joe, Joe Williams. Yeah. I think if I, yeah, if I was starting out now for the first time and I was all over and I was starting my, my journey right now from scratch again, I would you know, I would definitely take that opportunity to go and spend more time because it would have just, I think, you know, it's, it's about fast tracking it, you know, and seeking out. Yeah. I would have, I think to answer that question, I would have seeked out, I would have probably started seeking out the, the, the experts, you know, more of them right from the beginning rather than coming to them slightly later, you know, that's great advice. Yeah. Um, Making my own mistakes. I would have just gone straight to the, straight to people like Joe Williams, um, you know, Bob Bays, you know, um, you know, any of these guys who are teaching, speaking, you know, teaching at, at a very, very high level and just and, and gone straight to the beginning, you know, to that training first off, you know, and then gone from there rather than coming to them, you know, two, three years down the road after I've made my own mistakes already. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's interesting. That's cool. And then um, the next question is, what's the most game changing piece of advice that you've ever personally received? The most game changing piece of advice I've ever received is nothing is ever in the way. Everything is always on the way. And how does, uh, what's the, how, could you explain that for me? Yeah. The first time I heard that, I thought, wow. And 
and I'd heard it before, but it never really, you know, registered with me. But a friend of mine reminded me about it. He said, listen, nothing is ever in the way. Everything is always on the way. And I said, yeah, I've heard that before. And he said, well, just what does it mean to you? So, and that was the first time I actually thought about it. And I thought, wow, what does it mean to me? It means, well, nothing is ever in the way. That means that there's no accidents in life. And I was at a time, I was going through a time when I just, um, I was going through a divorce, a separation from my wife. And I was a very low, low point. And I, you know, I wasn't having, I wasn't seeing my kids every day like I was. I was only seeing them every, every, every now and again. And it was a very tough time for me because my kids are, you know, they mean the world to me. And, um, I was at a low place in my life and I remember thinking, what does that mean? Nothing is ever in the way. Everything is always on the way. And uh, I thought, well, you know, it means that there's no accidents in life, right? Uh, if nothing is ever in the way, then um, everything that happens happens in order to serve me, right? So, so that means that everything is always on the way. On the way where? On the way to, you know, the ultimate destination, wherever that is, you know, Nirvana or, you know, your ultimate end, you know, your ultimate outcome. Um, so that means that everything is always on the way to that. So if something happens and I began to think about it, I thought, well, if something happens, that means that it's not happening to me. It's happening for me. And then the light went on. I thought, wow. And then I, I said to my mate, I said, listen, thanks for reminding me about that. And now I use that all the time. I always remind myself whenever anything happens, if I don't like it and, you know, initially my reaction might be, ah, oh, you know, I don't like this. And then I think <laughs> to myself, well, well, you know, maybe this is serving me. You know, maybe at some point I'm going to look back. I'm going to say I'm glad this happened, and I'm glad that happened because if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be here. So I'm so I'm less. So I judge it less. You know, I'm uh, I judge it at a much slower speed now. I suppose I don't. I'm less inclined to to look at it and think ah. And if I do do that, I'll just catch myself and say, well, you know, nothing's ever in the way. Everything's always on the way. So there must be a reason for this happening, and this is happening for me. It's not happening to me. It's this is going to serve me at some at some some way. It's going to serve me at some point. I'm going to look back and, and be grateful for this. So I might as well be grateful for it right now, right? Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And, and the final question is, what does it mean to be unstoppable to you? To be unstoppable. To be unstoppable means that, that you welcome adversity and you use adversity to grow. Uh, it means that nothing's ever going to put you down. It means that whenever anything happens to get you to knock you down, you jump straight up and you say, right, what's next? Uh, unstoppable means that you take whatever life throws at you and life sometimes will throw you a, a, a very mean curve, curve ball when you least expect it. But it's having that, that mindset that, again, coming back to what I said two minutes ago, is about, you know, it's always on the way, right? It's, it's always serving you. It's, you're unstoppable. Nothing is going to stop you. You'll bounce back from any adversity. And uh, if you think about what Napoleon Hill said in Thinking Garucci and that great line in that book, he said, every adversity has within it the seeds of an equivalent or greater benefit. And if you think about that, it means that every adversity is serving you. And unfortunately, you know as well as I do, and I love the fact that you came up, that you, I remember when you first told me about, you know, developing the unstoppable brand, I thought, wow, I love it, you know. Um, because there's so many people who get stopped, you know, they get stopped by so many different things and they, they have the shot taken out of them, you know, they have their mojo is, is, you know, dissipates because of the certain things that they encounter in life. And being unstoppable means that you know that everything is serving you and everything is making you stronger. And you will not be stopped by whatever shows up. Awesome. You know, you just have an, you know, just a, a determination that you're going to make your life unfold exactly as you see it in your mind. 
Awesome. Thank you, man. That's I think a, that's how I would describe it, Joe. That's a great definition. I, I really appreciate that. You're welcome, bud. Thank you. So the, the final thing, Alan, is just for, for the listeners, how, how do they reach you? How do they find out more about your work? How do they connect with you? If they, if, if they want to work with you uh, uh, as a speaker or as a coach, how do they connect with you? Uh, I'm on Facebook um, at Alan Speaks. So it's facebook.com forward slash Alan Speaks. It's A-L-L-A-N Speaks, as, in, as, as you and I are speaking right now. Um, my website is alanspeaks.com. It's currently being rebuilt. I'm actually um, having it changed up a bit. So at the moment, I've just got a very basic uh, page there where people can find out about me and leave their details, etc. Uh, but I'm having the website rebuilt and it's going to be coming back and uh, I can't wait for it to, to, uh, to launch again. It's going to look good. Uh, I'm excited about that because I'm going to be putting some more emphasis on the speaking and the speaking coaching, you know, and working with speakers to become more effective speakers. Uh, but yeah, I'm on LinkedIn also. Um, so I, I'm not very, I use Twitter, but I'm not very big on Twitter. Um, yeah, but I would say Facebook and LinkedIn and all, all through my website. You know, I can personally testify having seen Alan uh, speak a number of times. And you know, actually, Alan and I spoke together at an event, and he gave me some very, very powerful feedback that's helped my own uh, speaking as a result of that. So um, I would certainly get in touch with Alan about um, your speaking and uh, do follow through on the website as he gets that built as well. There'll be some great stuff on there. Thanks, buddy. Alan, thanks for it. Thanks for your time and your insight and your wisdom and sharing your story today. It's been really insightful and, and some really powerful nuggets for, for, for the listeners to take away. What will happen next is on Monday, I'll be releasing a, a debrief of our episode and I'll share some of the personal takeaways that I'll be experiencing. And, uh, and I'd encourage the listeners as well listening today to, to visit the show notes over at the unstoppablepodcast.com to, uh, to, to share their, their takeaways from today as well. So thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate this session. It's been a really enjoyable and powerful conversation and I uh, can't wait to connect again soon. Dan, thank you, my man. Thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it, but it's been great. I always love talking to you and uh, I look forward to doing something with you again in the future, but we need to do that. Wow, what an epic episode. Thank you, Alan, for making this such a powerful episode. I, for one, am very excited to get back on stage and go out there and share my message. Thank you for sharing some great tips on how to maximize your presence and impact as a speaker. I'm really excited to get back on the the road and do some uh, work myself on stage. Coming up next week uh, on Monday, you'll hear the recap from the show where I'll be sharing how I implement what Alan has spoken about today. And I'd also love to hear about what you're going to implement from today's session. So do head over to unstoppablepodcast.com and check out the show notes and add some comments. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it on social media. It's my mission to really help as many people as possible to unleash their greatness, build their empire and create a life that they're proud of. And this podcast is one way of helping to do that through some of the great guests I've got on the show. So please do share the episode. Every single share and every like counts on social media. So thank you very much for doing that. And finally, if uh, you enjoy the show, please do come and leave a review on iTunes. It means a lot to me. I read every single review on the show. And uh, if you want to email me about uh, for future guests and suggestions, I'd love to hear from you too. Thanks, as always, for being a listener of the show. I hope you got great value from Alan's session today. I look forward to the next episode. Until next time, go out there, unleash your greatness, ignite your movement, and build your empire. You are unstoppable.